Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Jeff Gallup, and I was the director of the Graduate School of Government uh, until 2015, but it's with great pleasure that I'm here tonight representing the university uh, to welcome you uh, to the campus uh, for a very important uh, occasion. But before I do that, could I just acknowledge uh, the, and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and it's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever into the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Today we're gathered to talk about the public service. It's a joint exercise put together by Sydney Ideas here at the university of the Australian Social Policy Association uh, and the Graduate School of Government. As you know, Sydney Ideas encourages debate and reflection on the major issues of our time, and certainly our public service is at the front line of many, many questions that are being asked in our society today. So in order to uh, uh, get proceedings moving, I'd like to invite Professor Adam Graycar, the Australian Social Policy Association, uh, to introduce uh, Dr Shergold. Thank you very much. Mm. Thanks very much, Jeff, and uh, welcome to you all. As Jeff said, this is a joint uh, <clears throat> presentation of Sydney Ideas and the Australian Social Policy Association. And there are two things I want to do. Uh, one is to introduce uh, Professor Peter Shergold, but before that, I want to do a commercial for the Australian Social Policy Association. Uh, on your seats, there is a brochure, and the association is a non-profit professional association of uh, people interested in social policy. It comprises researchers, educators, practitioners, and policymakers, and it's a forum for the exchange of ideas, for enhancing debate, and uh, making social policy evidence-based and understanding the ideas that uh, flow from it. And uh, the reason I'm doing the commercial is because I'd like you to join. Uh, if you have a look at uh, the piece of uh, paper there, it has, a, has some information. And one of the interesting things we do is that uh, we publish the Australian Journal of Social Issues, which was founded in this university in 1961 and for many years was edited just, I can see exactly where it came out of in the Fisher stacks, it was edited from this university for many years. But as I said, uh, the Australian Social Policy Association is uh, a collection of educators, researchers, policymakers and practitioners. And our speaker tonight, Peter Shergold, has something to say to all of those. Peter Shergold has been an and is an educator, a researcher, a practitioner, and a policymaker. He's uh, achieved enormous heights in each of those areas. Uh, Professor Shergold uh, is currently Chancellor of, the, of Western Sydney University. 
if I were to go through each of his uh, previous positions, we'd be here till the cows come home. But uh, the important thing is he spent time, uh, five years, as Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. He's worked in the non-government sector. He's worked in the commercial sector. He's worked in academia. And he has a, a vast amount of experience, knowledge, and communication skills to bring it all together. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter Shergold. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this evening. This is no country for an old man. I do not talk of the physical ailments, lapsing memory and minor indignities of ageing, which I presently suffer with modestly good grace. No, these are troubling days to be getting old in more profound ways. It sometimes seems that the world I have known and which I fondly expected would provide a warm cocoon of supportive familiarity in my declining years is being torn apart. I'm not talking of the technological revolution of biogenetics, robotics, global communication and artificial intelligence that is casting a future that I will not live to see. I understand the challenges and recognize the inherent challenges of such developments. But in truth, I find them exciting. Applied humanely, they can be forces for enormous public good. Rather, what perplexes and disheartens me is the apparent threat to the framework of ideas the economic ambitions, social mores, cultural values, that has given rise to the inventive impulse. In my mind, I remain too much of an economic historian to believe in the human story being one of smooth progress along the tracks of time. The history I read and write is in large measure a narrative of struggle and conflict, driven by technology, moulded by economic relations, and influenced by social customs and religious traditions. I've never subscribed to the march of civilization, And yet, in my heart, I've always retained a comforting sense that the world was tending to become a better place. Poverty was declining, living standards rising, health improving, lives lengthening. Most important, I have believed, like Steven Pinker, that the better angels of our nature were asserting themselves in the way societies are governed, and the manner in which their citizens are free to live their lives in peace and security. It may sound banal, but I had faith in the universality of reason. Perhaps naively, I 
imagined that the utilitarian morality that's underpinned my own personal life would, albeit slowly and erratically, extend its ambit, creating a safer, even nobler world. Believing in the power of intellect, I thought that through greater access to education and learning, humanity would become wiser. I suppose that the gradual expansion of Enlightenment values would free individuals from the exercise of authoritarian power and tyrannical violence. I look forward to more civil and respectful societies in which citizens would accept the personal choices of others as long as they did not infringe on the autonomy and well-being of themselves. For me, these didn't simply represent ideas to live by. They were ideas to work for. As a public servant, from my time as founding director of the Office of Multicultural Affairs 30 years ago, to my role as New South Wales Coordinator General for Refugee Resettlement today, I hoped that I could build a more tolerant and fairer society. I would become a minor footnote to Australian political history. Shaking off my mortal coil, I could depart satisfied that through my modest contributions, I was leaving behind a better world for my granddaughter than that which was bequeathed to me. This speech then might be regarded as a personal reflection on hubris. Perhaps I was mistaken in my eager anticipation of the future because like you today, I witnessed the structures of representative and responsible government assailed from all sides. Across the Westminster countries and beyond, I perceived declining trust both in democratic institutions and political leadership. A relentless 24-7 social media that undermines respectful political discourse. The emergence of celebrity-driven populism that seeks to persuade the public that there are simple answers to the wickedly complex problems of public policy to which there are no definitive solutions. And I witness, too, the popular appeal of authoritarian ideologies that challenge the tenets of secular liberal democracy and take psychopathic form in religious fundamentalism, fanatical terrorism, and bloody warfare. The global village, which for so long I visualized as a neighborhood of hope, has become instead a dispiriting place in which too many people find themselves intimidated, frightened, and divided. The internet of everything has become, at least in part, the internet of everything bad. An invention that seemed to be founded on a libertarian ethos is now a vehicle for conveying ignorance and fear in real time. These, I think, 
are not just the jaundiced views of a grumpy old man. This week, as in past years, I hosted the winners of an essay competition for young people. The redoubtable social researcher, Hugh McKay, is its patron. Called What Matters, it is sponsored by the Whitlam Institute within Western Sydney University, of which I'm Chancellor. On this occasion, there were 3,871 entries, and both Hugh and I discerned a darkening mood. At a personal and social level, school children appear to be increasingly concerned about the direction the world is taking. Hopefully, their youthful vitality can give rise to new ideas on how Australia can meet the challenges that they discern. My own lack of political foresight is borne out by polling. I don't here reference recent electoral outcomes, but rather public surveys of perception. This year's annual Roy Morgan Image of Professions report showed yet again that nurses are deemed by Australians to be the most ethical and honest profession. They were regarded highly by 92% of respondents. It showed too that car salesmen remain firmly anchored at the bottom of public esteem with a 4% score. Continuing to fall sharply in respect in the public mind are ministers of religion, now at a record low of 35%, and bank managers at 30%. And yet the rankings of even those occupations continues to soar above those of politicians who have languished in the estimation of their public for years, scoring just 12 to 18% over the last five years. A brief parenthetical uh, digression in the interests of a bit of cheeriness, the strongest rating improvements in 2016 were for university lecturers, up 7% to 68%. Ipsos research, which was commissioned by the Governance Institute to conduct a statistically robust survey to inform its ethics index, reached a similar conclusion. Asked to judge the behaviour of a range of occupational and organisational groups, respondents indicated that the charitable, health and education sectors were viewed most favourably, whereas government received the approbation of few, being regarded as unethical by 40%. When net scores were calculated by subtracting negative percentages from positive percentages, the results were even starker. Whereas fire services, ambulance services and police were respected, achieving scores of 84, 83 and 54 respectively, 
local, state and federal politicians were looked upon dismally with scores of minus 20, minus 33 and minus 33. Given the apparent disdain and distrust that Australians exhibit for their political leaders, it's disquieting, although scarcely surprising, that the annual Lowy Institute poll consistently shows relatively low levels of support for the democratic form of government. This, too, is a challenge to my emotional sensibilities. You see, for me, democracy represents the form of governance that is most likely to grow and sustain liberal values and encourage positive civic engagement. The process by which citizens can elect those who govern them, protected by a rule of law and informed by a free press, acts as a bulwark against the arbitrary exercise of executive authority. And yet, particularly amongst younger Australians, there is a surprising level of ambivalence about democracy as a form of government. This year, just 61% of respondents believe that democracy was preferable to any other form of government. Amongst 18 to 29-year-olds, however, the situation is more dire. Only 54% of those surveyed indicated that in their minds, democracy was preferable. 14% believed that it didn't matter what kind of government Australia had. And 28% expressed the view that in some circumstances, a non-democratic government could be preferable. Although these findings are actually somewhat more positive than in previous years, the level of indifference remains worrying for someone who's always assumed that democracy was the apotheosis of hope for the production and transmission of public good. So these are demoralising rather than interesting times in which to live. And yet, to the mighty relief of you, my audience, I am not want to despair. Like most of my young essayists, I continue to believe that things can get better. After all, I was from early childhood instilled with uncritical enthusiasm to support Portsmouth Football Club, a professional soccer club founded on the profits from Rickwood's beer in 1898. Now languishing in the English Football Association's second division, in 118 seasons, Pompey, as they are known, have won the FA Cup only twice, in 1939 and 2008, and the league championship only twice, in 1949 and 1950. As someone who still feels the need to check how the club has fared first thing every Sunday morning, I've little alternative but to believe that hope springs eternal. Amidst the gloom, there remains promise. Perhaps 
it is the triumph of desire over experience. The challenge, the challenge is to reimagine how democratic processes and the values that underpin them can be revitalised. My focus is Australia, although the views I express are deeply informed by developments in other Westminster-style countries. And my starting point is that element of democratic governance which I understand best, the public service. Although the role of a permanent public administration rarely figures extensively in political textbooks, it is, in my view, a cornerstone of democracy. In this, I am a traditionalist, steeped in the meritocratic reforms of Sir Stafford Northcote and Sir Charles Trevelyan in 1854. I remain convinced that without a non-partisan and impartial public service, willing to serve successive governments with equal commitment, political decision-making is likely to be less well-informed and more poorly executed. Without senior public servants willing to offer frank and fearless advice in confidence to ministers, truth will not be spoken to power on a routine basis. Without a public service that is deeply imbued with a sense of honesty and integrity, formal democracies will be undermined by corrupt and nepotistic practices that weaken equality before the law and access to opportunity, privileging some interests above others. Similarly, I've got no doubt that democracies are strengthened by having the design and the delivery of government programs and services managed by professional public administrators. At least, at least as long as those appointed officials never, ever presume that they, rather than elected members, decide what's in the public interest. The role of a public servant is to ensure that whatever resolutions governments reach, they do so with their eyes wide open, fully informed as to the consequences of their decisions. So to me, public servants are the stewards of public resources across electoral cycles. On behalf of government, they collect revenues, draft legislation, implement the regulatory framework, and oversight the delivery of the payments, services and programs, which together frame the implicit contract that exists between a state and its citizens. They're publicly accountable for the manner in which democratic governance is delivered. In Australia, that accountability is through their minister to parliament. However, the decisions, their decisions, are subject to wider scrutiny. They are answerable before parliamentary committees, the Ombud and the Auditor General. They can be held responsible for their actions 
through the panoply of administrative review, including the application of freedom of information legislation. It's perhaps reassuring then that public servants are rather more trusted by the public than the elected officers that they serve. In the Morgan poll, public servants are seen as ethical and honest by 39% of respondents, which is at least twice the proportion achieved by politicians. In the Ipsos poll, state and federal public servants, unlike politicians, achieved positive net scores, albeit of only 16 and 8 respectively. And of course, these figures provide misleadingly conservative underestimates of trust. Ambulance paramedics, nurses, doctors, firefighters, police and teachers, all of whom are predominantly employed in the public sector, are viewed far more favourably. Somewhere in the public mind, I hazard a guess, the first image that comes to mind when asked to judge a public servant is of a paper-pushing shiny bum in a grey cardigan sitting forlornly at a desk in the office of circumlocution, nibbling at his last iced vovo. Of course, that stereotype of the bureaucrat is unfair. In Australia, public servants have instigated successive ways of reform in the last 40 years, often without the intervention, sometimes without the full authority of the governments that they serve. Most jurisdictions have been driven by the impulse to make public administration more efficient and effective, providing better services at lower cost. There's been a focus on increasing organisational capacity and leadership capability and instilling a stronger ethos of performance management across the sector. The need to strengthen strategic policy advice has been a recurrent motivation. So too the requirement to upgrade service quality. But I do not seek to gild the lily. Much remains to be done. In my recent report to the Commonwealth Government, entitled Learning from Failure, I was pretty scathing in my criticisms. Among other things, I highlighted the need to significantly enhance programme and risk management. Such Workforce improvements are important. I support measures to achieve them. But they do not lie at the centre of my address. My ambitions this evening are more grandiose. What interests me most, now that I am largely liberated from the day-to-day -day management of public policy, is how the institution of public service can be reimagined. How, I wonder, can a civil service help to revitalise a civil society? I've recently come to employ the nomenclature adaptive governance 
to characterize the form of transformation that I believe is necessary. It envisages a more agile form of public administration, exhibiting greater flexibility to respond to changing circumstances and a willingness by government to experiment and even to fail in pursuit of its goals. And that requires political leadership able to construct a coherent narrative of governmental aspirations and to explain to the public just how difficult it will be to achieve. But it also depends in fundamental ways on the capacity of public officials to master the leadership of facilitation. Public servants will continue to sit at the centre of decision-making. That presents them with the opportunity to exercise their position of situational authority in order to undertake the business of government quite differently. They can shoulder their responsibilities in ways that not only provide greater public value, but more importantly, can also strengthen participatory democracy and the values upon which it is founded. By their actions, by their behaviours, they can change perceptions of the relationship that prevails between the state and the public collectively and its citizens individually. Placed at the hub of governance, they can pivot direction towards a more hopeful future. And how can that happen? In my view, the challenge is to look at disparate changes that are already underway in all three tiers of government, and then to imagine how those initiatives could be expanded and connected. New ways of facilitating the business of government are already being demonstrated, but far too often they remain at the periphery of public administration. They need to be undertaken in a more systematic and holistic manner, driven by an ethos in which the citizen is placed firmly at the centre of the political stage. They need to be pursued with visionary boldness. And what are these changes? Well, five. Five innovations pursued concurrently have the potential to transform participatory democracy. First, government, through their public services, should be willing to commission the implementation of their ambitions. I purposefully do not use the term outsource. The facilitative task is to find which mode of delivery, public, private or community, is most likely to be effective, assessed not just on the basis of cost, but on the public value that is created. Nor, you notice, do I employ the transactional language of contract. If a decision is made, if it's made, 
to place responsibility for undertaking government business in the hands of third-party agents, it should be on the basis of negotiated outcomes. The contract should be written to capture agreement on the way in which success will be measured and how payments will be awarded on performance against those metrics. In many instances, I think a diversity of providers should be selected, offering citizens choice in selecting the organisation which best meets their expectations. Instead of trying to control administrative processes so that all deliverers are required to operate to the same prescriptive rules, public servants should get out and actively encourage them to be innovative in finding new ways to improve the service that they offer to citizens. The purpose shouldn't be to manage a contract, but to facilitate a relationship in which all parties recognise that they share a common interest in the execution of government policies. If a decision is made to retain programme delivery within a public service agency, frontline staff should be empowered to wield greater autonomy in how they go about achieving the outcome set. Citizens with their balance of rights and responsibilities are far, far more than customers. But they should expect to receive at least the same level of services as they experience when they purchase their requirements in the private market. Second, public servants on behalf of the governments they serve should collaborate. I don't talk here merely of the need to coordinate activities across and between the structural silos and jurisdictional demarcations of bureaucratic territoriality. Rather, my emphasis is on building genuine partnerships across sectors. Private and community organisations should not just be consulted or contracted. Rather, they should be recognised as the empirical basis for experience-based policy. A facilitative public service can involve those outside the government sector in planning. It can enable businesses and community groups to bring their distinctive perspectives to the task of pinpointing problems, seeking solutions, identifying risks, and resolving how they might be managed. Through cross-sectoral collaboration, public servants can co-design, both with for-profit and not-for-profit organisations, how best to meet the objectives set by government. Better still, they can, through their joint efforts, seek to influence how those public policy goals are established. Collaboration, just as much as staff exchanges, can help make the borders of public service more porous. It is likely that from diversity, new ideas will emerge. Third, 
through the facilitative leadership of their public servants, government beneficiaries can be afforded far greater authority over the services that are funded to meet their needs. The term used to describe this new attitude progressively being rolled out in the area of disability services and age support is consumer-directed care. I prefer a more radical formulation, citizens in control. If this approach is implemented with conviction, those who require support can be assisted to set their own priorities, manage their own publicly funded budgets, and choose their own providers in a contestable market. There's no reason, incidentally, why this philosophy of power empowerment cannot be extended to other areas such as health or mental illness or education or training. The great advantage is that people who as recipients or beneficiaries have found themselves placed in a position of dependency are empowered, if they wish, to take greater control over their lives. Instead of learning helplessness from their relationship to government, they can instead become active participants in making decisions on the public support that they need. For me, the leap of imagination is to recognise that all Australians are experts in their own lives. Public servants often fail to recognise, for example, that the best source of evidence on why single mothers often resist returning to the workforce is single mothers themselves. Thankfully, there are exciting initiatives underway which not only recognise that fundamental truth, but see it as an opportunity to engage citizens in delivering government. A programme called Family by Family, designed, incidentally, in the community sector, seeks to provide support for troubled families in unexpected ways. What it does is to identify families who have been through but survived hard times, and then trains them to support other families who face similar challenges. Public servants provide support, but they do not tell families what they need to change. It's recognised that everyone's goals are different, whether it's to be better parents, to manage a family budget, to get a job, or to make friends. The approach is now being trialled in Adelaide and in Mount Druitt, New South Wales. While the programme is funded by governments because of its potential to reduce the costs of welfare dependency, the path to greater self-reliance is based on the largely voluntary engagement of citizens solving their problems together. Fourth, public servants have the potential to facilitate the creation of social investment in public good. Rather than simply engaging the private and community sectors in the design and delivery of government services, governments can also attract additional funding 
to trial innovative new approaches. There are a variety of ways in which government can assist individuals and corporations to fund social, cultural or environmental outcomes. Not just traditional philanthropists, but ethical investors who seek both social and financial returns. Public servants can ensure that the tax and regulatory regimes are supportive, or more proactively, they can intervene in order to stimulate the pooling of funds for public purpose. One financial instrument to emerge in recent years is the social impact bond, or in New South Wales, where the second stage of a trial is already underway, a social benefit bond. It was an idea that I vigorously advocated when I was the head of the Centre for Social Impact. In essence, the government establishes the outcomes that it wishes to achieve, such as a reduction in the incidence of children having to be placed in out-of-home care, or lower levels of prisoner recidivism, or more low-cost social housing. A social enterprise then designs its own programme to achieve that objective. And funding to support the initiative is garnered from the private sector. If the programme successfully meets negotiated outcomes against benchmarks, the not-for-profit organisation is paid a performance-based fee by government, which can be used to pay investors an agreed return and to retain a proportion of earnings to scale up the initiative. Whilst government, if you think about it, is effectively able to transfer risk to a third party, the arrangement also provides an opportunity for the venture to fund its social entrepreneurship. Government has become more participatory. Additional public value is created through the harnessing of impact investment. Fifth, the public service can facilitate greater direct engagement with citizens in ways which demonstrate participatory democracy at work. New approaches can be found to allow citizens to find a voice beyond traditional public advocacy. In Australia, new democracy, which both Jeff Gallup and I support, is actively trialling new forms of citizens' juries. In essence, randomly selected citizens are provided with the necessary information to make decisions on public policy and allowed to work through often complex issues in deliberative fashion. The process can provide a mechanism for governments to engage public judgment rather than simply responding to public opinion through the traditional mechanisms of polling or community consultation or focus groups. A number of demonstration projects of jury-based approaches are now underway, ranging from an assessment of the nuclear fuel cycle in South Australia to the development of new forms of local government structure in Geelong. By involving citizens in the process of policy formulation, 
it may be possible to identify an informed general will. There also exists the opportunity to employ digital democracy far beyond the traditional application of information and communications technology to convey government information or undertake relatively simple transactions. Of course, of course, everyone who needs to use government services should be able to find what they need to get their business done quickly and easily. That seems to me, however, a relatively unambitious goal. It's true that the more extravagant hopes that I once had for the revolutionary potential of de-democracy have been repeatedly dashed. And it is increasingly apparent that social media can be as easily employed by authoritarian governments as it can, can by the people they oppress. Yet I still believe, despite my gloomy pessimism, that the freedom to connect can be just as powerful a force for good as the freedom of assembly. Australia has a strong basis on which to build. The recently released 2016 UN rankings indicate that our nation is, reckon, uh, is ranked now second in the world in terms of e-government. But our ambition should be to lead the world in e-decision-making. I'd like to believe that the far-reaching power of the virtual world can be employed to actively engage citizens exercising influence in the real world. As a first step, the public services can find creative ways to intermediate online public participation in governance through consultative webinars or wikis that allow collaborative modification of content. The key in building digital communities of practice is to ensure that citizens can engage on their own terms, able to put forward their own proposals whilst evaluating suggestions of others on an iterative basis. My impression is that this works best when the questions asked are specific enough for citizens to respond in concrete terms on the basis of their personal experience. How, for instance, can Sydney's nighttime economy be improved? How can the services offered by Job Active be enhanced? Or what are the major problems in getting overseas qualifications recognised? This much is certain. Technology is not a panacea. If existing government practices are simply transferred to the digital world, the exciting potential for the internet to promote democratic pluralism will remain unfulfilled. Traditions of representative and responsible government are going to be challenged by the idea that citizens can remain continuously engaged with the democratic process. My sense is that to use real-time communications to engage citizens in collective decision-making and problem-solving 
will entail a radical overhaul of the modern administrative state. And I think that that's a good thing. My speech, as so often my working life, has moved from a position of troubled pessimism to cautious optimism. Secular liberal democracies are under challenge, both from external authoritarianism and internal apathy. Our response cannot be half-hearted. It is entirely possible, on the basis of what already exists, to contemplate the creation of a revitalised form of democratic government in which citizens can be active participants in the policies which govern their lives. They can be given the opportunity to co-produce public policy. Through greater engagement, a more civil society can emerge. The public service is crucial to this ambition. It's possible to contemplate not simply the reorganisation of the public sector, but the creation of a public economy involving all sectors of society working in a variety of facilitated partnerships. This is not, is not a neoliberal agenda proposing a contract state in which government service provision has been privatised, nor is it a constrained democracy in which the community sector has been co-opted by dependence on government funding. It's driven not by an ethos of economic rationalism, but of social benefit. It's a plea for more substantive involvement of business and community organisations and the active participation of individual citizens in the creation of public value. Imagine, as someone of my generation once said, it's easy if you try. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for those wise words, those wonderful challenges, and uh, sharing your breadth of experience, a little bit of pessimism, and some cautious optimism. So we now have time for questions, comments. Uh, Gabby has a microphone. Our first one is there, and our second one is here. And could you please say who you are? Uh, Nick Rowley now at the University of Sydney. Peter, uh, thank you very much. I'm very glad that I'm... Uh out on a winter's night in a nice warm room listening to your thoughts. So thank you uh, very much. Um, look, just three points. They're not really direct questions, but um, uh, I suppose I'd just like you to elaborate a little on what you've said. Um, firstly, the question of capacity. I'd like you to reflect a little bit on um, whether or not you believe that the public service currently has the capacity to achieve some of these things. I reflect on Laura Tingle's excellent quarterly essay, uh, Political Amnesia. Uh, my second point um, is uh, what you were saying about individual budget holding. Um, it's not a new idea. Um, 
the National Health Service and Community Care Act in 1990 was very, very keen on, uh, on individual budget holding and it, 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 it actually resulted in a whole lot of major challenges in terms of how one administered public funds uh, and, and distributed those uh, in the interests of, of, of individuals. So uh, what, what is different, I suppose, is my question there. And the third thing, and this gets to a question of culture in the public service, is that to achieve, I think, at least four of your five needs a real culture of creative openness. And uh, certainly in my experience, I think that the Canberra Public Service is really quite risk averse. And how do you reward that creativity uh, within a bureaucracy? So that's an easy question. I'm sure you can answer that very quickly. Um, so just three points. I'm not sure that I'll get all three, but let me start with your first, about capacity. Because as you portrayed your question, to a very large extent, I think, the capacity, with your reference to Laura Tingle, was about does it have the capacity, in a sense, to be frank and fearless? Does it have the capacity to actually speak truth to power? Now, no, and do stuff, and to do stuff. Well, um, let me start then with the do stuff. The do stuff is much easier to judge. Okay, I think in my time I was sort of seen as a can-do public servant. I would always grab hold of the decisions made by government and do my utmost to, uh, to get them out there. I, I have no doubt that um, there is that capacity to get things done, and I can see it both at the Commonwealth and state level. To be honest, uh, I remain convinced, as I was when I was a public servant, that on the whole, and this is a big generalisation, the senior leadership of the Commonwealth Public Service is probably more adept at providing policy advice, but the senior public servants at the state and territory level are much more effective at actually getting programmes and services out. The other part, though, is whether it has the capacity to actually give advice, as they should, to um, elected governments is much harder. I mean, it's harder for the public to judge. I'd have to say it's pretty hard for journalists to judge. And it's even difficult for me now being outside a lot of the system uh, to judge. Because if you think about it, the whole purpose of the provision of frank and fearless advice is to do it in confidence. It is not seen. And so it's very difficult to know you know, was the disaster of some policy of John Howard because I was weak at providing policy advice, or was it in fact that I had put this forward as a proposal, or was it in fact that I had fought tooth and nail against it, but accepted at the end of the day that the Prime Minister had the right to make the decision on public interest? I used to take a great... Um, uh, comfort from the fact that I think in most but not all issues journalists found it quite difficult to know what was the advice that I had given in private because my view is that once the decision was made hopefully but not always with eyes wide open then the role of a public servant is to get out and do it 
Do they have the capacity? I think there are real problems. Uh, you may be surprised at the problems. When I was looking at the home insulation program, how it went so absolutely disastrously wrong, and there are many reasons why we need to learn uh, from that failure. But um, uh, part of it was, of course, that at the request, I think, of ministers, or certainly ministerial advisers, much of the advice that was conveyed was conveyed only orally. Here's my view. You cannot give frank and fearless advice simply by spoken word. I reckon I'm a pretty good. I can talk under wet cement, right? But my view is to tailor a piece of advice that you want a minister to see, it has to be written down. And what is now happening, because, ironically, the extension of the freedom of information legislation in 2010 and extending what is in the public interest, you now have ministers saying to Commonwealth public servants, look, I want to hear your advice, but don't put it in writing, because even though it's a deliberative government a, a document, the chances are it might be seen under FOI. And you have public servants purposely drafting things in an anodyne fashion in case they become public. So I think they have the capacity. I still think they've got the courage. There are things that are going very wrong. I, w I want to give other people a turn, so I won't. Is there an opportunity for a culture of creator openness? Yes. My view is yes. But public servants need to say to governments, as I now say on private sector boards, what is your appetite for risk? And people say, well, do, minister, do governments talk in that way? Well, no, but you can say, same thing, how much political capital do you want to risk on this initiative? How much risk do you want to take relative to the other policies you're introducing, and how do you want us to manage and mitigate that risk? But it can't be risk avoidance. And again, if you go back to the home insulation program, if you look at the bureaucracy of risk, it was brilliant. There were people appointed to give risk advice, there were committees, there were structures, and it was complete bullshit. You know, it didn't really happen in that way that no one sat down and said, no one who was in charge of risk management said, oh, and people could die doing this. And how are we going to manage that risk? It would have been easy. So I think there is the capacity, but I do think you're right that a lot of it is to re-envisage how we look at risk in a political situation. And that depends on political leadership and public service. Um, Alison Cooper, I wanted to ask um, uh, the question that probably is a little earlier than your um, vision, because um, your vision has one that um, has um, a complex um, involvement of the community. But um, at the moment, we're facing the possibility of a plebiscite, and I would be interested in your views on um, how that might or might not work, whether you would be in favour or not. Um, I have no in-principle objection to a plebiscite. I actually think, however, it is a relatively crude way of trying to get a sense of public judgment. Um, I think that it would be far better in a democracy to open up channels in which, in a civilised discourse, people can put a variety of views on this matter 
and then for elected politicians as representative and responsible parliamentarians to take the decision. Uh, I think you could go with the plebiscite, but it's one of those forms that people think, ah, oh, well, that seems very democratic. In fact, it's a very crude way, in my view, of trying to judge public opinion. And, in a sense, is also fraught with danger in how the debate, public debate will be framed around that plebiscite. Um, over here, Professor Sheergold. Uh, George Papanicola is my name, a concerned citizen. Um, <laughs> I, I just wanted to uh, sort of uh, use a couple of examples emblematic of the problem uh, of privatisation uh, uh, within the public service uh, and uh, disaggregation in that sense. Um, I know you're uh, heavily involved in the vocational educational system as well as obviously being at uh, Western Sydney University, uh, so you're across the education brief. I mean, the TAFE system, particularly <laughs> in New South Wales, has been totally uh, disemboweled, I think, and uh, we've just seen the CSIRO now sort of suddenly having had a 180 rethink by the, the minister in terms of its uh, emphasis on climate change science, which seems uh, uh, maybe just straight after the election it might be uh, apropos about the timing. But um, when you have these kind of organisations that have developed a, a culture and a, a, a personnel, often long-term in its nature under the previous administrations before contracts became uh, um, so preeminent, um, trying to reboot these systems if you actually find that they're not working, trying to reboot and sort of, you know, sort of restructure and build up the TAFE system, vocational education system, the CSIRO, and you could probably apply it to many other areas where privatisation has come about. This idea that uh, the private system and its so-called agility will help uh, give you a more competitive and, and active and beneficial system, more bang for your buck. Uh, when it's proven that maybe that doesn't work and you have to go back to the old system, it, it, there's a huge problem with actually ramping up and re-establishing those tried and true methods that uh, maybe you want to go back to. So I just wanted to get your opinion on what you think the problems are with that uh, and does, do you need to actually then have much more of a think about whether you do privatise things in the first place or have a backup plan that is, uh, uh, gives you an ability to actually um, uh, restructure these organisations much more uh, easily and quickly than uh, the current uh, system seems to be able to cope with? Well, vocational education and what's happened in the last year, in my view, is a classic instance of how a public policy is so abysmally executed that, in fact, it's difficult to judge the policy which gave rise to it. That is to say, you could imagine this would be properly conducted, run out slowly. My own view is that you experiment first and then, over time, increase to scale. We could have done this with vocational education as we could have done with home insulation. Um, it fell between the cracks of Commonwealth and state responsibility, particularly in terms of the regulatory responsibility that was required. So I think there's been a huge setback in that area. It's uh, uh, an abysmal uh, in instance of very poor public service implementation. And to go back to an earlier question, is one of those issues that does raise questions about capacity. However, and you won't be surprised at this, I don't see the fact that private providers 
were um, uh, encouraged to also provide vocational edu education as privatisation. I see it as contestability. I see it as a means by which community education providers, uh, TAFEs, and private providers would be able to offer their services and for individuals to be able to choose uh, what they preferred. Uh, you can see that in the higher education uh, sector, uh, which has been far better regulated, uh, you haven't seen the same problems. I have no problem with Australian students being able to choose Bond University over Western Sydney University. And in fact, I think that uh, contestability is worthwhile. And I see us both providing a public service. So I don't see that as privatisation. I see it as contest uh, creating a contestable market. Just as we did right back in the 1990s, and I was involved with Job Network, where you created a market which had the public providers and the private providers and the not-for-profit providers all offering their services. What went wrong there, and it was in truth after my watch, is that the way the government tried to administer that in order to avoid risk was to provide every one of those providers with what are now 382 pages of prescription on how they're to do their job. And then you say, what was the point? The whole point was that Salvation Army or the Department of Employment or Therese Rain Work Directions would offer those services in different ways. Not that they would all be forced to do exactly the same thing in the exact same way. If you're going to do that, do not put it out into the private sector or the community sector. The theme of my speech is you only do this not to save cost, but to drive entrepreneurship, to get people to offer citizens services in different ways and allow citizens to have choice. Uh, thank you, Peter. That was a very stimulating uh, talk. I really got two questions for you. Um, <laughs> One has to do with the, uh, the, the kind of vision of public service that you outlined, which, uh, which in general terms uh, uh, is very attractive. Uh, but the, my question there is about the migration pattern from here to there. I mean, what you're fundamentally talking about is, is uh, a transition like the 1983 one to new public management. Um, the compliance culture, the uh, principal agent mindset, the, the top-down uh, uh, approach to governance is so embedded in the DNA of the system that uh, I imagine it will be very, very hard to move uh, um, okay. without that. If I, my second question is about um, your political uh, solutions. I mean, the state of the world that you outlined at the start and the state of democracy in Australia that you outlined could not, in my view, be suitably uh, adjusted by the kind of citizen jury ideas. They are very useful add-ons, but they won't solve the problem. Why don't we look at New Zealand? I mean, New Zealand, has, since 1996, has had two lots of uh, uh, minority governments. They've got a GST change through the system. They've got very good Maori relations. They've got social reform through their system. Uh, I don't suggest we'll get proportional representation in Australia. There's no constituency for that. But surely it has to be acknowledged that the problem is much more systemic than simply putting a few add-ons on our okay. existing okay. representational system. Okay, migration from here to there. I have been very careful 
in the speech that I've given tonight to base it on initiatives that are already in place. My frustration is that the initiatives that are taking place that so interest me, that people introduce me to, the, the pilots, the demonstration projects, um, even when successful, seem to remain at the periphery of public administration. And my task now is to take that and to bring it into the centre. In other words, if you like, this is Robert Gibson. The future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. I want to get it evenly distributed. And of course, that's why I said that citizens' juries aren't the answer. None of this is the answer. What I'm saying is that this range of initiatives needs to be connected and seen as a whole. That's what the, the change can be. And on New Zealand, yeah, it's, it's disheartening. I have learned to suffer defeat on the rugby field with good grace. But it is really difficult, particularly over the last 10 years, to realise that they comprehensively um, beat us hands down in the area of public administration right now. It is true, and we can learn from them. Thanks, Thanks Peter. Um, my question is about uh, citizen juries. And I guess hearing what you had to say, I think it's really important the nature of information that you provide to the citizen juries is actually quite important to influencing the outcome of those. So my question is, in a practical way, how do you guarantee the freedom of the deliberative space? Or you know, in another way, how do we avoid citizen juries becoming merely a tool to legitimate a pre-existing agenda? Um, and I'm answering this and I'm not an expert on citizens' juries. And I repeat what I'm saying, I am not holding them out as some sort of silver bullet in terms of uh, citizen engagement. Uh, I obviously believe there is a benefit in selecting people randomly uh, for this. Uh, I believe there is a benefit in letting them discuss and debate issues. I think it certainly worked well. I've seen at the local government level, I think in Canada Bay, in presenting people with the reality of what was the budget available to local government within which to take decisions. It is a way, if you will, of framing the challenges that governments face. It is a way, if you will, of saying, yes, everybody publicly, if asked, will want to pay less taxes and everybody will want more services. I mean, it's simply a vehicle to try and get people to understand, as governments must explain, the challenges that they face. I don't think that's a panacea. I don't think, as I've said, that online uh, e-democracy or re-decision making is a panacea. We've got to go careful, though, not to think that we can't get you know, a new Toyota running on the road because we want to build a Rolls-Royce. Uh, one of the dangers, and it is always a danger in the public services, incidentally, is you want to trial, uh, to, to workshop things to death, to think of every possible thing that could go wrong before you trial something. And what happens a lot of the time is then you don't actually do it. I just don't understand, I have to say, why governments and the public servants who serve them are so unwilling to trial 
different ways of doing things. Try things three or four different ways and see what works. We never know, incidentally, what the behavioural impacts are likely to be. As they discovered in the UK when they did their own home insulation programme, the obstacle wasn't what was assumed in Australia, which was that people didn't have the money to pay for home insulation. The key problem they found when they questioned people in the UK was people didn't want to get up in the attic and remove all the rubbish that had been stored there. So to respond to that, they designed a quite different sort of program where people could get people to come in, paid by government, to help them into their attic. And then they would pay for the home insulation. So partly it's a way of trying to understand in a way even the best and brightest public servant sitting in a room cannot how people actually react behaviourally to public policy initiatives. Uh, Professor Shegold, thank you for your thoughts this evening. Uh, really interesting speech in, uh, uh, down the front. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> uh, in particular, kind of your, your five initiatives or ideas around how to uh, reimagine the future of the public sector are really, truly interesting and quite exciting. I was wondering if you could articulate, though, uh, the links you see between, I guess, the root causes of some of that distrust and kind of uh, failure of our current polity and how these uh, ideas that you're putting forward actually help address those root causes and might therefore uh, improve the status quo. I have no simple answer to the root cause, and I think, obviously, it is, is highly complex. Uh, but I do believe that, at base, um, government has been, uh, has been removed from people in the sense of being able to feel that they can participate in the democratic process. And I suggested in passing that so often the relationship of a citizen to the government is the relationship of someone who comes to government as a beneficiary or a recipient or a case to be managed, and surprise, surprised, they actually imbibe a sense of helplessness rather than a sense of involvement. So all of those initiatives that I talked about are trying to change that framework of the way people look at government and actually to get them involved. If I have one key message, it is that I think democracy can only be revived if we find ways to once again make it participatory. People used to find that through joining political parties and being involved. You know, frankly, only real nerds go and join political parties now. You know, people are they're finding ways to advocate uh, differently. But I think we've got to get ways in which citizens can be involved in the political process in a regular basis on the ways that suit them, in ways they feel that this, the government is part of them, not something just to be voted on every three or four years. Thank you very much, uh, Peter, for that very inspirational address on our, our public service. My uh, contribution tonight is to add a sixth point to your list, and that would be uh, to facilitate the accessing and uh, of good information about the performance of government. I, I say that in, in the context of, 
an, an, an experience that you'd remember very well, the establishment of the COAG Reform Council in the last years of the Howard government continued in the Rudd government and I happen to have the, the privilege of being the deputy chair of that organisation and it started to develop some real, I think, impressive performance in terms of getting information to report to the people of Australia about how the state governments were going, one compared to another, how the Commonwealth government was going in terms of uh, outcomes in education, in health, and it was just starting to get moving. And, of course, it was abolished uh, with the, the change away from the Gillard government. I think if, if the public are to be convinced that a lot of these exercises which you're advocating to get more participation, more collaboration, more agility, more adaptive, a more adaptive style of government work, I think the people are also going to want to know that educational standards have gone up, uh, that the delivery of emergency departments is improved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would add the, the development of a really strong information gathering system and reporting system to back up all of those things that, that you're talking about. And if I can just give one little answer to that previous question about how do you, you, you show that these things are important, Canada Bay you mentioned. I was interested in Canada Bay where they did a, a deliberative democracy on their budget. They literally framed their budget through the, uh, the processes of, uh, of involving a random selection of people. In the local government elections that occurred that year, the Labor Party was wiped out significantly throughout New South Wales. But in one council, the mayor, who happened to be a Labour, his vote went up. So I don't know whether he just had a better machinery to get votes than the other Labour people around uh, the state of New South Wales. But my instinct tells me that the people saw that he was engaging them in a new way and gave him some support. So I just make that point uh, as, as a backup to why it is these things can develop more trust within the government. But my main point is information gathering and provision. Thanks. And we have one last question at the back. Thanks, Peter, for a thoughtful and um, inspiring lecture. Uh, my question is this. We've seen some changes in the senior ranks of the public service when governments change. Uh, indeed, one recent example was uh, one head of department being asked to leave only to be installed in an even more senior role when uh, he himself was replaced, when the, when the prime minister was replaced. My question is, how do you guard against any such, if I, was, if I may use the word, capricious behavior? Yeah. And the converse of it is, how do you guard against the politicization of the public service? Yeah. Um, I feel very lucky that in my term as head of PM&C, when we did the transfer from the Howard government to the Rudd government, and after significant discussions with the incoming Prime Minister, there wasn't one change. There was a lot of discussion about certain of these individuals, but the point which Prime Minister Rudd accepted is you cannot tell. Let these people perform for you, and then you will get a judgment. One thing that politicians tend to do is judge senior public servants, the mandarins, by the ministers they serve. So if you happen to be serving a minister who they really loathe, you tend to be seen in the same light. Of course, what governments often discover 
I think in fact they discovered it with me, is that a public servant who you may think had a different political persuasion, if given a chance, you suddenly realise is, is a pretty good deliverer for either sides of politics. So uh, the other thing I would say to you, though, is that it's one of the reasons why I, unlike many of my public service colleagues, actually extol the significance of ministerial advisers. I think ministerial advisers, which were introduced by Don Dunstan in South Australia and Gough Whitlam at Commonwealth level, were a very sensible approach because it allowed ministers to have a relatively small number of people that they employed who they know shared their view of politics. And for ministers then to be able to have those people within their office and then an impartial public service, I think is a good balance. So thanks. I just want to say sorry, and one thing, because it is important with, it can this actually happen? The one thing I can tell you is you can try it out. So I'm Coordinator General for Refugee Resettlement in New South Wales. And I think if you're doing this, you've got to sort of walk the talk. So what I've done in that was to try and make co-production work. So I set up a joint partnership group co-chaired by the Department of Prime Minister, uh, Premier and Cabinet and Settlement Services International. And we worked together on framing the proposal that went forward to the Premier on the budget process. And they saw, we didn't get everything, but they could see how that process was reflected in the budget decision that was then taken. We set up a I Can Help website, so people who want to volunteer, get involved. We then, as public servants, help to facilitate that, to allow them to find ways in which they can use their volunteering spirit to help refugees. And finally, in terms of what I think is the most significant initiative, which is to try and set up a triage model for refugees when they arrive to help them get on the track into education and into employment, that that is jointly funded by the state government and business. And it's a way of making sure that we can work together in a collaborative way. So I think we actually can try these things out and show, actually, that they work. Thank you very much, Peter. I think we're all very privileged to have had Peter share his wisdom, his experience and his knowledge. Uh, I've always thought of Peter as a colossus of pub in public policy, but also a great communicator and a great bridge builder. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join with me in thanking Peter Chauvin.